Well, isn't it awesome? It feels like fall, finally. It's so great. My toes are cold. Feels good. Uh, this is how it should be feeling this time of year. My hands are kind of cold, warming them up. I know that won't last for long, but uh, it's uh, great. Just beautiful day out there. We're going to be going into our time of teaching right now. Uh, inside your program is a message note sheet. We use it every week if you're brand new. It's uh, green and white. You'll definitely want to pull that out. And uh, then if you guys are ready to go, uh, I'm ready to jump in. You ready to go? All right, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here once again, to be pursuing you as a church. And as we, we kind of kick in this uh, third and final series on this trilogy on, on Genesis, God, we pray that you'd be here, open our eyes to new truths, and especially the big truths that impact our lives today and, and shape us as we follow you, go out to follow you in our lives. And so we pray that you'll be with us. Thank you this time. I pray for clarity for me. Uh, just we will be gathered around your word, hungry to grow and hungry to hear from you. And you'll speak. And that's our prayer. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we are uh, launching uh, kind of a, the third and final series in this trilogy of series that we've been in on the Genesis Chronicles. You see it called the Re- Rebellion and Redemption. And so for those of you who are new, uh, this is actually, like I said, the third and final of three series uh, on the first three chapters of the Bible. And so the first series was called uh, The Story Begins. And in that first series, we looked at uh, kind of this big picture description of the creation of the cosmos. We're introduced to this amazing God who speaks all of uh, creation into existence uh, and prepares it for us uh, for our first home. Uh, and in the second series, uh, The Pursuit of Life, we watched as Moses zooms in to one specific part of this creation. Uh, he moves from the creation of the cosmos to the creation of the first couple, their first home, this incredible place in a garden called Eden where he provides them everything they need to live and grow and thrive and to rule over creation as first king and queen as friends and lovers. And so up to this point in the story, uh, everything has been great. In fact, we've moved from good in chapter one to great in chapter two. But today as we move into this third and final series in chapter three, uh, we come to a critical event that I'm calling the rebellion. And it's, it's an event where this first couple chooses to rebel against their creator, follow the great enemy that we'll meet today, uh, and launch out to try to find life on their own. And so in the process, uh, as they cut themselves off from the source of all life, then the end result is death. And it's death at every level, as we'll talk through in this series. And so in theology, we call this, uh, this, uh, this choice that they made the fall. And, uh, and we're going to be unpacking it today. And so the plan is today, when I look at the first seven verses of chapter three, as we set the stage for this whole series, and then come back and, and lay out and ask some very important questions that will guide us all through the series. So there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called the Genesis Chronicles of Rebellion. So if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's go ahead and turn them on and uh, go to chapter three, and we're just going to launch into this uh, amazing story. And so uh, Genesis 3 and verse 1 says, The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And so he says to the woman, "Uh, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So back in chapter 2, when God created the first man, uh, he pulls him aside and says, All this is for you. This amazing place, all for you. The trees, the fruit, the whole thing designed especially for you. You can eat whatever you want, whenever you want. Uh, But there's one exception. There's this one tree, tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that. If you eat of it, you'll die. You'll surely die. So that's how the story begins. 
So the serpent, and we'll talk about who the serpent is later, but the serpent comes to this first woman. He says, hey, word is on the street that uh, there's amazing garden that you have here, all this incredible fruit, but you can't eat any of it. Now, that's the exact opposite of what the instructions were. The instructions were you can eat anything, anytime, uh, just one exception. He comes and he begins to plant uh, seeds of doubt in her mind. And I want you to catch this. The whole point is he wants to get her to question the goodness of God. He wants to get her to question, uh, he, he wants her to begin to look at God as being restrictive and not protective. And so he begins to plant this doubt. And so Eve now is going to respond and she says, well, verse two, uh, no, we may eat from uh, the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it, we'll come back to that, uh, or, we, or you'll die. Okay, she says, no, that's not really quite right. Here's what he actually said. But I want I wanted to do a quick sidebar here, just because uh, we're not gonna be talking about this today, but I just wanna do a quick sidebar on this one phrase, or don't touch it. Uh, because it's so important. Um, as far as we know, God never said anything about not touching the tree. Right? This is something she added. And this is the first example we see in the Bible of what I would call legalism. Legalism is when we add to God's word. Legalism is when we say, God said, thou shalt not, or thou shalt, when God has not spoken. And it's deadly. Legalism is at the heart of religion, and religion kills. We've talked about that many times. And so, for example, uh, let, me, let me give you a modern day example. Uh, legalism is, uh, uh, God says, don't get drunk with wine. In other words, don't be under the influence of other uh, kind of hallucinogens or, or you know, uh, kind of uh, uh, drugs. Don't be under the influence, okay? And we come along and say, hey, Christians should not even touch alcohol, right? Now, did God say that? No, God didn't say that. God said, don't be under the influence. We come and say, hey, don't even touch it. So what have we just done? We have added to God's word. Now, just to be clear here, I'm not saying, therefore, that all Christians should drink. <laughs> I could just see it going up right now. <laughs> In a Twitter. Yeah, uh, uh, there may be good reasons not to drink. You may choose not to drink. The Holy Spirit may convict you in your life. Don't drink. There was times in my life when the Holy Spirit, when my kids were younger, I felt like he said, during these years, I don't want you to drink. So there may, that may be fine, but that's not legalism. When the Holy Spirit's leading you to do something, that's not legalism. Legalism is when you add to God's word and say, all Christians shouldn't drink. Are, are you with me here? And so whenever we add to God's word, thou shalt or thou shalt not, and God has not spoken, it creates problems. It leads to legalism and it leads to religion and religion kills. So Proverbs chapter 30, verse five and six. Proverbs says, every word of God is flawless. And then it says this, do not add to his word lest he rebuke you and make you a liar. All right? And so we're not gonna talk about that today. It's not the point today. But it's really interesting to me today that, that it would appear that she's beginning to, to add, and this is what legalism does. It says, hey, well, if it's wrong to be drunk, then Christians should never drink, because if you never drink, you'll never get drunk. So what we do is we start adding fences back to prevent us from doing what God said, 
But what that does is it leads to just kind of a deathly uh, kind of religious approach to life. All right, so anyway, he comes and he asks and says, hey, uh, we're down the street. You can't have anything. She says, no, no, that's not really right. There is this one tree you can't. And so he's planted the seeds of doubt in her mind. And so uh, now he's going to directly confront uh, and, and accuse God of lying. And he says, verse four, he says, no, you, hey, that's not really right. You'll, you'll surely not die. You, you'll not surely die. Uh, he says, here's, what's, here's the truth. What's gonna happen is that God knows that when you eat, uh, your eyes will be opened. And I want you to underline that phrase. It's very important. Your eyes will be opened. Um, you're gonna see the truth about life. And what's gonna happen is you're gonna become like God. Uh, you're gonna know good from evil. Uh, You're not going to need God anymore to tell you what's right and what's wrong. You're not going to need God to tell you what's good and what's bad. You're going to be like God. So here's the truth. God's trying to hold you down. He's trying to keep you under. He's trying to restrict you. Uh, He's he's afraid of the competition. God doesn't have your best interest at mind. He's trying to keep you under his thumb. So what's going to happen is if you eat this, all of a sudden you're going to get really bright, really smart. You'll be like God. So you won't need God, you can be your own God. You don't, God won't be your ultimate authority, you can be your ultimate authority. And so she looks at this fruit and she's beginning to wonder now, well, hey, well maybe, you know, maybe, maybe it's telling the truth. I mean, the fruit looks good, doesn't look dangerous. Uh, verse six, she, saw, she, she looks at the, the fruit and it, it looks like it's good for food and it's pleasing to the eye, it's beautiful, it looks delicious. And uh, it's also desirable for gaining wisdom. Like, who wouldn't like to be wiser? And so she takes some and she eats it. You know, she, she kind of bites on his argument. And uh, then she, and she also gives some to her husband who is with her, and he ate it. Now, this is really interesting. Because up to this point, we've kind of visualized this like it's just the woman and the serpent, right? But it turns out her husband's there. And the question is, well, what's he doing? You know, sitting on the couch watching a game. You know, just kind of, he's, dis, he's disengaged. Like, he's supposed to be her leader. He's supposed to be her protector, right? And he's disengaged. And for whatever reason, he's passive. And, and she's just kind of there, and they're having this dialogue, and he doesn't really speak up. And uh, then he goes ahead, and he rebels, and he eats it as well. Now, interesting thing. In the New Testament, there are several passages that look back on chapter 3 of Genesis and, and draw principles from them. But one is in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're told that the, that, that the woman was truly deceived by the serpent. That she, she bought the line, hook, line, sinker. But it says the man was not deceived. Like he saw through this, but he chose to rebel anyway. Which makes his sin probably greater. And the question is, why would he rebel? Why would he do that? And we don't really know the answer. We're not given the answer. I've always wondered if the answer is he doesn't want to lose the woman. That she's already eating. She's rebelled. She's going for this. She is the greatest gift in his life. And at this point, he chooses the, the gift over the giver. And, and I'm just throwing it out there because men, this is something we've done since the beginning of time. Man, how many times have we been derailed because we chose a woman over God? And I want to be clear, this is not about the woman's issue. 
This is not putting, what I'm saying is how many times, guys, have we compromised our relationship with God over a woman, over sex, over something? Like we said, we're we're gonna take the gift over the giver and it leads to our downfall. As men, we are called to be leaders, leaders in our home, leaders in our family, leaders in our community. We are not called to be passive sitting on the sideline. I think one of the greatest challenges of being a man today is passivity. And you see this, is like we've lost our identity as, as created as kings to rule and to lead well. And we've got to regain that. That God has called us to be men, to call us to be leaders. He's designed us to be leaders and we need to rise up and we need to lead well. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, so anyway, for whatever reason, uh, they both uh, uh, bite, you know, they both bite on this line. And so immediately, the eyes of both of them were what? Open. Now, catch this. What did Satan say would happen? Your eyes will be open. Oh, tell them the truth. I'm going to come back to that later. The eyes of both of them were open, and, and they suddenly realized they're both naked. Now, this is, can be pretty shocking. You ever have dreams like this? <laughs> like you're up speaking? And you're naked, right? It's like weird dreams, right? This is like horrifying. You know, you're out in public. Well, this was like a nightmare for them. Now, remember, they had always been naked. We got perfect climate control going on here. And uh, back in chapter two, you remember the story is that uh, they're naked. God says, I brought you together. Two become one, have fun. They're naked. They're unashamed. They're like little kids uh, running through the sprinkler on a hot summer day just full of life and freedom and joy and innocence, no sense of uh, self-consciousness or body image issues. Uh, they are just, you know, they're having, but the moment they rebel, all of a sudden they realize there's something wrong with them. And I would suggest this nakedness that they're experiencing their body, this awareness, it's, it's much bigger than this. It's awareness of a nakedness of soul that they have rebelled against the king. Something has dreadfully gone wrong. We don't know what they experienced. I've always wondered, like, what did they experience? The moment that they, they bit the fruit, uh, did, did it suddenly go back? Did their head start spinning? Uh, did, did they're like, like morally, you know what it's like when you know this is wrong and you choose it anyway and there's that sense of guilt that hits? Like, it, it, what, I don't know what they're experiencing internally, but that moment, their whole world began to spin out of control. And the first sign of that was a sense of nakedness. Something is wrong. And now they're beginning to come. Now, remember, they've never seen clothes. Uh, there is no banana republic down the street. No gap. No, no curtain. No, I mean, they, they have never seen clothes. Clothes are a foreign concept to them. And yet they instantly feel this sense of needing to cover and so they're now frantically going to be looking around to what can we cover ourselves with that any concept of clothes, the best they can do, they look for the biggest leaves around and they're on fig trees. And in the Middle East, fig trees big, pretty, grow pretty large and fig trees, you know, fig leaves can get pretty big. And they start, they start kind of putting these together and they're trying to kind of sew them together just to cover themselves in loincloths. It's a pitiful sight. It's a sorrowful sight. This this world that's been bliss before has suddenly come crashing to an end and they are painfully aware something is wrong with me. And I want, to, I want you to catch this. This has been the story of the human race ever since. That we are all running around trying to find fig leaves to cover our nakedness. Trying to hide ourselves from the truth about ourselves from God, from ourselves, from one another. 
And so in this moment, all the world comes crashing down. And so it says, the eyes above them were naked, they realized, uh, were open, they, they, they realized they're naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. We're gonna stop there today as we see this act of rebellion and the first, uh, first signs of death setting in. In the coming messages of the series, we'll watch how death begins to spread to every area of their life, not just physical, but emotional, uh, psychological, relational, uh, cosmic. It's, uh, it's death at every level, and we'll watch that as it begins to unfold. But for today, I want to stop there. And what I want to do is I want to, I want to start this series by asking three what I'm calling obvious questions. Uh, questions that if you had never read Genesis 3 before, and you are not a believer in Jesus, and someone gave you a Bible, and you're reading through, and you read this, these would be obvious questions. Like, if you don't ask these questions, you've been a Christian too long, right? Like, like these are just obvious questions, but they have huge implications, right? And so there in your note sheet, there's a section that's called The Rebellion, Three Obvious Questions. And let's just kind of walk through these, because they, have, they really have epic implications for our lives. The first question goes like this. Is this story real? Did this really happen? Like, are you serious? Are you telling me that there was a, a time and a place where a first couple was created and they're naked and then they, they eat this fruit and they get, uh, they get deceived by this talking snake and that's the, way the, that's the reason why the world is like it is? So like for those of us who have been longtime Christians, we are so familiar with this. We just read it and go, oh yeah, I know the story, I know how it goes, I can tell you the story, right? But I want you to picture you're sharing this story with a non-Christian friend. You're at the office, and they're like, hey, I just want to understand, from a Christian's point of view, like I'm not a Christian, I'm an atheist, but from a Christian's point of view, why is the world so screwed up? Why, is, uh, why are people the way they are? Why are there tsunamis? Why are there earthquakes? Why are there tragedy? Why do babies get illnesses? Why, you know, from a Christian's point of view, you say, well, let me tell you. Back in Genesis 3, once upon a time, there was a talking snake. <laughs> and he came to this first woman and he tempted her to eat fruit off a magic tree. And so they ate it, and that's why the world is like it is. Uh, how do you think that's going to fly? I mean, it's, there's something that's like, hey, wait a second here. This is, uh, this is kind of an obvious question. Like, are, are you saying this really happened? And uh, it brings up an issue that I've mentioned throughout this series. That when we step into the world of Genesis 1 to 3, what I'm calling the Genesis Chronicles, that we step into a world that seems strangely familiar at many levels, but strangely unfamiliar at many others. It almost feels like you're stepping into an alternate universe at times. It's like you've just walked through the wardrobe into Narnia. And within Narnia, it all makes sense, but it feels very alternate universe. Right? I mean, like as we see today, the way I like to put it, this is a world where God walks and snakes talk. Uh, it's a world where the, the choice of what fruit you eat determines the destiny of the race. And the question is, how are we to understand this? Now, here's what I'd say is I'd say throughout this series that as you ask that question, 
And you look historically through the church of Jesus, people who love Jesus, love his word, uh, believe in the inspiration of scriptures. Historically, there have been people, who some who've understood it in a more literal way, some of more of a symbolic way. Uh, for my money, I would be more on the literal side of things. Uh, I, I would tend to lean that this is a literal event, that yes, it really happened, as crazy as it sounds, talking snake, you know, magic fruit or whatever, that it is really a little story. And, and the reason is for me is that when I look at the Bible, the Bible is full of supernatural events, is it not? But, but they're normally not like weird events, right? They're not like elves and fairies and unicorns. That's not how it works. It's, it's real events in real time, in real places with real names. Like Moses doesn't lead the nation of Israel out of never, never land, he leads them out of Egypt, right? He, uh, that when Josh, when the walls fall down in the city, it's not, you know, one of the cities of Lord and the Rings. It's Jericho, one of the oldest cities in the world. We know where that city was. Uh, when Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't on Mount Olympus. Uh, it was in Jerusalem. There was over 500 people that saw him alive. Touched him, felt him, and the Apostle Paul can say about within 20 years of that event, he can say, listen, 500 people saw him alive. If you don't believe me, go ask him. This is the way the supernatural happens in the Bible. Real events, real time, real history, real places, real names, right? This is the way it ends. And what I want you to catch is these events here in Genesis 3 are extremely outside the norm. They are highly unusual. You've got a talking animal. That only happens twice in all the Bible that I can think of. Anything better? You know, I mean, in, in like real life talking, not like a vision or something like that. But uh, you've got here, and you've got the story of Balaam's ass, right? King James. Um, <laughs> so I was raised on. Uh, good enough for Jesus, good enough for me. Uh, Right, so this is a highly unusual event. And here's what I want you to catch. You know, if someone that I really trust in life who always tells me the truth about life tells me of something highly unusual, I tend to trust them. It's like because they don't normally tell me weird stories. Right? Like if you come up and you're just a really solid person and I know your life and all, and you tell me you had a vision and you explain what's in the vision, I'm going to tend to believe you because you have a track record of telling me the truth. Now, if you're always telling me weird stories, like some of you do, uh, no, I just, no, I don't, I don't listen then. It's a weird story, weird person. I don't know. You know no, just kidding. Just kidding. All right. So uh, when the Bible, who normally tells me uh, stories that make sense, real history, tells me something out of that, my inclination is to say, well, you know what? I found it to be true all the rest of the time. I'm going to trust it. And on top of that, as you go into the New Testament, or the Bible, you find that the Bible takes the early events of Genesis 1 to 3 very literally. Uh, for example, um, when you get to Genesis chapter 5, there is the first genealogy that goes from Adam to Noah. And it traces the genealogy back, and it treats Adam like a real person. He's not just like a prototypical symbol, right? He's a real person. Uh, when you go to um, the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 3, there's a genealogy of Jesus. 
It traces the human lineage of Jesus all the way from Jesus back to Adam, all real people. Uh, and when you go, uh, when Jesus is asked uh, about divorce and remarriage, Jesus goes back to Genesis 1 and 2 to answer that question, treats it as real history. The Apostle Paul will sell uh, often, we already talked about one time today, he'll often go back to Genesis 3 as real history and saying, hey, the reason life is like it is, this is what happened there. Many times he does that, right? So for my money, uh, based on the authority of Jesus, based on authority of the New Testament, based on the way the Bible does it, it seems to me like, okay, this is a weird story, agreed. I'm the first to admit it. But it's very unusual for the Bible. And when the Bible, who's normally very straightforward, says, me to trust this, it makes sense. Like, okay, it's an unusual time. It's an unusual event. It doesn't happen all the time. It was a one-time event. Having said that, though, I want to be clear that there are other Christ followers who love Jesus who see it differently. One of my greatest heroes of the faith is C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis would not see Genesis 3 as a literal event that happened in history. He would see it as a symbolic event that describes a real rebellion that took place very early in our race. So there really was a rebellion. It's described in a symbolic way. But however you see it, what I want you to catch as we start this series is the events of this series are epic. The events of this series uh, shape the direction of our entire story. What I've said before over and over, the opening chapters of Genesis are like the first chapters of an epic novel that set the plot in motion that won't be resolved until the very end of time. Uh, That's exactly the case. And so these events that we're looking at control the destiny of our race. And so we have the, the first, we see the first rebellion that leads to the death of our race. We see the first promise of redemption that will not be, that story will not resolve to the, the last chapter of Revelation, all right? So that's the first question. Is the story real? Second question is, who's the snake? Now, If you are a longtime Christ follower, once again, we just jump right in and go, well, that's obvious. Who's the snake? Satan, Satan right? So we, we answer the question, but here's what I want you to catch. If you were Adam or, you were for, or if you were Eve, there's no way you would have known that. All you would have known is that a talking serpent has either slithered, slithered or strolled up. And if you, all you know about the animals is that they don't talk, and then this one animal comes up and starts talking, you're probably going to pay attention, right? You may even think, hey, maybe this person really is different than the rest. Maybe he has inside information. Now, it's interesting, uh, though the serpent is never identified. It's interesting. We just got, well, it's Satan, right? But if you read the passage, it never says that. It just says it's a serpent. Uh, But as you get into the New Testament, we get more information about Satan, and and this serpent is clearly identified. In fact, uh, we're three chapters into the book of Genesis, right? So this huge Bible, epic novel story, right? Three chapters in, we meet the serpent. Interestingly, three chapters from the end of the novel, the serpent is identified. In fact, if you look in your note sheet, in Revelation 20... There is this kind of highly symbolic event going on where God sends an angel to 
uh, capture Satan and put him like in a spiritual prison for a thousand years. We won't go into that. But, but notice what it says. It says, this angel sees the dragon, that ancient what? Serpent. Serpent. Who is the whom? Devil. Devil or Satan. Satan. Okay, so the ancient serpent of Genesis 3 is clearly identified as the devil or Satan. By the way, Satan means adversary. In Hebrew, uh, shatan, adversary, uh, the enemy. And they, they binds him for a thousand years. And so here at the end of the Bible and other places as well, uh, this serpent is clearly identified as Satan. But what I want you to catch is that they would not have known this. All they know is he's talking serpent. He seems pretty bright. He's unlike any of the other animals. Uh, we're told he's more crafty than the other beasts of the field. And so he comes up. He begins this conversation. Uh, there's no backstory here. They don't know where he came from. Uh, they don't know how he got in. They don't know why he's talking, what his, his motives are. Uh, they don't really know much about him. And he starts this conversation. So although they don't know much about him, there's two things that jump out right away about the serpent that are extremely important. And I want you to write these down on your, your note sheet. The first thing is his motives. And the second thing are his methods. And, and we're right here at the beginning of this epic story the Bible is telling. We're going to get some insight into who the serpent is and what his motives and his methods are. And so his motives, very clearly, his initial motive is to discredit the creator. His initial question is, did God really say you can't eat anything? He is trying to plant seeds of doubt about the goodness of the creator, and he is trying to discredit him. And then second motive is to destroy these, this first couple. And there's no reason given for this. He obviously hates them. He's trying to get them to do what will kill them. And then secondly, in terms of his method, his method is deception that he is going to try to lie and deceive them into self-destruction. We'll talk about this more later, but apparently he doesn't have the power or the permission to attack them directly, so what he's going to use is deception to try to get them to self-destruct. Okay? Eat the fruit that will result in their death. Now, it's interesting. When we turn to the New Testament, we begin to get a lot more information about this adversary, Satan. And you think about Jesus and you think about one of the hallmarks of his ministry was to overthrow the works of the devil. In fact, in, in 1 John, it says this is why he came to destroy the works of the devil. And, and remember, we just got out of the Gospel of Mark. Remember, we were in there for about 10 years. And, and in the Gospel of Mark, this is hallmark. Jesus comes casting out the demonic. You remember that? Uh, he says, How, this is, if, if I'm casting out demons, you know the kingdom of God has come. It's one of the great hallmarks of his, his, his confrontation. And so in the ministry of Jesus, we learn a lot about this great adversary. And when you get to John chapter 8, there in your note sheet, uh, Jesus is having this confrontation with some re religious leaders. And he knows that they're out to kill him. And uh, they think of themselves as being very close with God. They think of themselves as being like sons of God. And he says, no, you're not sons of God, you're sons of Satan, which didn't go over real big. And so he says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. What he's talking about? Well, he knows they're trying to kill him. He says, you're trying, you want to carry out your father's desires. And the catch is, he was a what? Murderer from the what? Can you circle that? Murderer from the beginning. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about Genesis 3. 
The first time we meet the ancient serpent, he's trying to destroy life. And then he tells us, and then he goes on and he says, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. Okay, so catch this. What he's saying, Satan is fluent in deception. For he's a liar and the father of lies. And so what Jesus say, he, what Jesus, he says, hey, let's talk about his motives. Let's talk about his methods. What are his motives? His motives, he's a murderer. We see that he first comes on in this epic story, this epic novel we're reading called the Bible. We're first introduced, what's he trying to do? He's trying to kill us. He's trying to destroy us. Now why? What do we ever do to him? He's having this is a young couple in love with one another, in love with God. They've never done anything wrong. Why is he trying to destroy them? And I'd suggest a couple of reasons. Number one, they remind him of God. We're made in God's image. He hates God. They remind him of God. And secondly, he doesn't have the power to hurt God. So if you can't hurt God, if you can't hurt someone, what do you do? You hurt their kids. You hurt someone that they love. And so he's going to try to take them out. And I want you to catch this. This is the heart of the great enemy. This is the epic story that the Bible is telling. That we have an enemy. He hates God. He hates us because we're created to be like God. He hates us because we're loved by God. And he will do everything he can to destroy your life. Now I want you to think about this. If I say I want you to like get a picture in your mind of resident evil. I want you to picture in your mind of like the essence of evil. Like what comes to your mind? You know, do you think maybe like Rwanda, the genocide there? Do you think of Hitler and taking six million Jews and putting them in concentration camps and then starving them to death and then putting them in uh, like fake shower rooms and gassing them and taking their bodies and putting them in incinerators and burning? Like, do you think, like, is that what you think of evil? Is that like, that's your best picture? Do you think of sex trafficking? People that take five and six-year-old kids, steal them from their families, and prostitute them out. Is that what comes to your mind as Resident Evil? Like, that's the best picture of Resident Evil. Uh, Maybe it's like a a sociopath, like a Jeffrey Dahmer who kills 17 men and boys, cuts them into little pieces, and eats them. Like, what is your opinion? Like, this is evil incarnate. This is the worst. Here's what I want you to catch. Whatever is your worst is a pale shadow of our true enemy. Because there is nothing that's ever been done on planet Earth that begins to approximate his evil. All these things are a manifestation of his leading. He is worse still. And his desire is to kill. Remember what Jesus said, the thief comes to kill, destroy, and kill. I have come, you might have life. And so we learn about his, his, his motives. His motives is to destroy all that God's a part of. His methods, what does Jesus say about his methods? He says his method is deception. He said he's the father of lies. He's fluent in lies. Now catch this. The mark of a great liar is not that they tell obvious lies. 
That's what kids do, right? You know, the kid's got like chocolate all over his face. Did you get in the chocolate? No. You know, the dog did, you know, whatever. Like, it's a horrible liar, right? It's obvious. Here's the mark of a great liar. The mark of a great liar tells you something that's 90% true and 10% false. And this is exactly what, when, when Satan is fluent. And when you see that here in Genesis 3, I want you to think back to what Satan said. He said, you will not die. He said, what, what's going to happen is that your eyes will be open and you will know the difference between good and evil. He tells it with a straight face. Now the question is, is he telling the truth? Well, 90% of what he just said is true. Were their eyes open? Yes. And did they come to know evil for the first time? Yes. I want you to think about this. Up to this point in time, all they'd known is good. All they'd known and experienced was an amazing creation, delicious fruit, beautiful home, fantastic relationship, love, connection, respect, great vertical relationship. All they had known in life was good. It was life to the full. And the moment they rebelled, they lost it all. And they, for the first time in their life, came to experience evil. And we'll watch this in the coming weeks. We'll watch this, this evil. It's unpacking the breakdown in their relationship, the lies, the betrayal, the self-centeredness, the, the guilt, the shame, the cosmic disturbances that will happen, the death that will come to their descendants. Catch this. Prior to eating the fruit, they did not know evil. After eating the fruit, they came to know the difference between good and evil. But it's not the way they thought. So what did Satan say? He said, hey, eat the fruit. You know, you're not going to die like a keel over. Not going to happen. Ah, uh, what's going to happen? Your eyes are going to be open. You're going to know good from evil. Is he telling the truth? 90%. But not like they thought. And then I want you to understand this. When we go through temptation in our life, Satan is not a five-year-old with chocolate on his face. He is brilliant. And he will come to your life and he will tell you 90% truth and mix in 10% lie. And it's the lie that will kill you every time. He will come and say, your boss is so self-centered. He is an egomaniac. He cares only about his career. He uses people. He is a manipulator. He has made it up by brown nosing. He is an evil man. Very likely, 90% true. Therefore, you should not be honest with him. You need to go around his back because he doesn't deserve it. 10%. Bites in the butt every time. Your wife doesn't love you. She doesn't care about you. Your marriage has gone stale. You haven't had sex in three years. 
You've tried four counselors, none of this has worked. And so what's a little porn? A guy's gotta do what a guy's gotta do. You swallow the pill. It kills you. Are you gonna let your sister get away with that? She's treated you like trash your whole life. Your mom has abused you, then your brother abused you, your sister abused you. Now she doesn't show you any respect. Why don't you just write her off? Give back to her what she gave to you. Even God wouldn't expect you to forgive her. 90% true, 10% lie. Are you with me on this? This is exactly how it works. He is a master liar. He will tell you 90% of the truth, withhold the 10, and while you're not looking and you eat the fruit, you die. It destroys us. Number three, third question. Why the fruit? Like, what's up with the fruit? And you go back to your non-Christian friend and like, well, let me get this straight now. So the talking snake comes up and then he um, convinces this first woman who is created from the side of the man who came out of the dirt um, (laughs) that she should eat this fruit and she ate the fruit and that's why the world is like it is. Like, what's up with the fruit? It's just fruit, right? Who cares if it's orange, apple, or banana, right? Like, what's the big deal with the fruit? But here's the point that I think we often miss. The issue is not the fruit. The issue is the choice. The choice could have been anything. The choice could have been, hey, don't go outside the garden. Or the choice could be, uh, you know, anything. What the choice was about was it was a test. It was a test about, will you trust your creator? Will you love this one who's given you all things? Will you trust his heart? Will you trust his intentions? Will you love him as he's loved you? Will you listen and follow him? Will you stay under his leadership as creature to creator? Will you trust that he's smarter and wiser than you are and kind of surrender to his leadership? Or will you follow the great enemy? Will you trust yourself that you're smarter, you're wiser, you're better? And if you truly want to get the most out of life, you need to strike out on your own. That's what it's about. What the choice is attached to is irrelevant. One of my favorite uh, authors, thinkers, pastors, philosophers of the 20th century was Francis Schaeffer. And he wrote a book called Genesis in Time in Space. And he put it like this there in your note sheet. He said, love and obedience in Genesis 3 are placed in the context of a commandment concerning a tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now catch this, there's nothing intrinsic about this tree that's different in any way from any other tree. Rather, God has simply confronted man with a choice. There we go. He could just as well have said, don't cross this stream or don't climb this mountain. What he's saying is, believe me or trust me, stand in your place as a creature, not as one who's autonomous. In other words, not as if you're self-created. You're independent, you're self-supporting as if you don't need the creator. Believe me and love me, trust me and love me as a creature to the creator and all will be well. 
You know, this life I've given you will thrive. This is the place for which I've made you. I mean, so, so what Schaefer is saying is it's, it's, not about, it's not about the tree. It's not about the fruit. It could have been a million things. It's about a choice. And the choice is, do you trust God and do you believe that he's good and do you follow his leadership or do you trust yourself, trust the enemy and trust that in order to live life to the full, I have to strike out on my own. And men and women, what I want you to catch is in this epic story we're looking at in Genesis 1 through 3, goes through the whole Bible, this is the ultimate choice of the human race. And it's your choice and my choice every day. Do we trust that God is good and that he is smarter and that he loves us and his path leads to life? Or do we trust that we know better, we stand by ourselves, and that if we strike out our own, we will be like God. We don't need God. We can be our own God and life will be better. And for every one of us, the choice comes at different spots. The rub comes at different places. For some of you, the, the, the rub is going to be in your marriage. All right? It's like, do I trust God and stay in this and try to make it work? Or do I trust Cosmo? <laughs> and strike out on my own and seek my own fulfillment. For some of you, it's like, hey, do I trust God with my money and my resources? And do I honor him? And do I give generously to his kingdom? And do I share with the poor? Or do I trust the Wall Street Journal? And for some of you, it's like, hey, here's what God says about forgiveness. And here's what God says about my relationship with my sister. And I need to forgive her. But this woman's magazine is telling me, no, don't let people push you around. Are you with me here? It's like we, every day, there are choices in our life, and some days, big choices. What do we believe that God is good? Do we believe that he loves us and that he knows best and he has our best intentions? Or do we believe, like the serpent said, that God is restrictive, his commandments are to hold us down, he doesn't want the competition, and in order to experience life to the full, we have to strike out on our own. And so for some, it's God versus possessions. For some, it's God versus pride. For some, it's God versus a person. For some, it's God versus a position. For some, it's God versus pleasure. For some, it's God versus popularity. But every one of us comes to critical crossroads in our lives. We have to decide. The two trees are before us. Which one do we take? And our decision will determine our destiny. Robert Frost wrote that famous poem about the two paths in the forest. Christian songwriter Larry Norman came many years later and turned it into a song. But I've always loved his song. And it goes like this, two roads diverged in the middle of my life. I heard the poet say. I took the one less traveled by and it's made the difference every night and every day. How how many times in your life and my life we have gotten to a crossroads and we have chosen the path that makes sense to us. We look at the fruit, it looks good. It looks like it'd be delicious. The argument is we'll be wiser. And so we trust the enemy instead of the creator. And we pay the price. How many times have we done that? How many times in your life and my life have we done what we think we know what's best? And the end result is death. 
there in your note sheet, the book of Proverbs, which will be written thousands of years later. Twice in Proverbs, this Proverbs is put down, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to what? That could be putting over the tombstones of the first man and the first woman. And it will also be put over our tombstone if we think we know better. And so the question for your life, for my life, as we start this series is, is really this, what do you believe about God? Do you believe that God is good, thoroughly good, completely good, no evil at all, that he is loved, that he cares, that he is smart, or do you believe there are times when you and the enemy know better? As we go in this time, we're gonna go into a time of worship right now. We're gonna teach you a new song. And it's gonna be a prayer that God will give us faith. Faith to trust in him. And I want you to think of this as the band is coming out. I wanna say one more thing. I know you're putting notes away, but. um, You know, have you ever wondered in the Bible why faith is such a big deal? You know, why are we saved by faith? We're saved by faith because we died by a lack of faith. This initial decision to not trust God, but to trust the enemy was our downfall. God can heal anything. It doesn't matter how far you've gone, he can bring you back. He can restore your life. But he can only do it if we'll trust him. And that's why salvation is by faith and faith alone. It's not based on our performance, it's based on our trust. And so the question is, who do you believe? Let's pray. Father, as we come now, as we come to worship, as we come to bring you our offerings, we pray in this series that you would confront us and challenge us with this core spiritual issue of life. What do we believe about you? And do we believe you're good? And do we believe in what you say? And God, in a room like this, I'm sure there are many of us that are in pain over times in our past where we have not trusted you and we have paid the price. There may be many of us right now that are facing a major decision in our life where it's hard to trust you. It's painful to trust you. That it's hard to believe you because it just doesn't even make sense. And yet it's that, that core decision. And so God, we pray in this series you'd increase our faith in you and your character. You'd transform us and as a result we'd experience the life we were created to live. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. Hey, I'll remind you a couple things. Next weekend, I'll serve, right? 7.15, meet right here in this auditorium, and we'll go out from here. Uh, secondly, don't forget that if you need prayer about anything today, right after the service, up here to my right, whether you're in the summit or over here, uh, you can go for prayer. And until next week, uh, may this be a week where you press into this God that we follow, this creator. May you learn and discover at new levels his goodness, that his intention towards you is always good. He's incredibly smart. He's bright, he's powerful, he's got a plan for our life, and as we choose him, we choose life. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next week.